following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now, um, if you could take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, as we pick up with our study of Paul's first epistle to Timothy. And uh, we'll begin the reading. Uh, we left off at verse 17, so we'll begin the reading this morning, verse 18, uh, the first chapter. Read down to verse 20. This charge I commit to you, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is a great joy to open up the Scriptures and to come to Your Word. And, and yet, Lord, we know the dullness and uh, the insensitivity that is so much a struggle we have with our remaining sin in our hearts, and so we pray that your Spirit would breathe upon us. Come, O Holy Spirit, and stir us up fresh to fresh sight of your glory and the glory of God, the glory of our Savior. We pray also that you would work in us powerfully by your Holy Word to stir us up, to love our Savior, to love and good works. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, it's all too easy to uh, romanticize war. Perhaps we think of John Wayne uh, in the movie The Green Berets or Tom Cruise in Top Gun Maverick. Or we think of ticker tape parades, medals of honor, uh, Veterans Day celebrations, famous war heroes and uh, war stories from the past, uh, of course that's legitimate, nothing wrong with that, but we tend to ignore or to forget about the ugly, nasty, grueling, painful aspects of war. Dead bodies, there we are, dead bodies, blood, gore, severed body parts, horrific suffering, Experienced not only by soldiers, but too often by civilians and, and even children as well. The physical and psychological toil, damaged lives, grieving families, and so on. And one effect of romanticizing war can be the tendency to enter into it with a kind of blind self-confidence that underestimates the difficulties and underestimates the enemy. And we forget, as the saying goes, that war is not a picnic. Uh, there's an example, striking example of this at the beginning of the American Civil War, the war between the states. The first land battle of the Civil War was fought in Virginia at a place near a stream called Bull Run, near the town of Manassas, a town where there was a, a vital railroad junction. Northerners called it the first battle of Bull Run, and Southerners called it the Battle of First Manassas. Uh, well, when the Union General Irvin McDowell addressed his troops at the eve of the battle, his only fear was that the Southerners would be unable to put up a good fight. 
the expectation was an easy, overwhelming victory that would bring a swift end to the war. News of the impending battle reached Washington by nightfall, and since Union victory seemed inevitable, it was almost treated like a social event. The next morning, spectators showed up. Also, ladies and gentlemen of high society with sandwiches and opera glasses, along with U.S. senators and representatives, piled into carriages and parked themselves near Centerville, Virginia, for what we might describe as something uh, like a tailgate party, a picnic, expecting to celebrate a great victory. In fact, this battle has sometimes been called the, the picnic battle. The problem was the North had vastly underestimated the Southern Army and its resolve, and what was expected to be a festive occasion turned out to be what one has called a scene of unimagined chaos and horror. The battle got off to a promising start for the North, but the tide soon turned when Stonewall Jackson led the Confederate soldiers on a bayonet charge. Now, the Union was routed with 3,000 soldiers left dead or wounded on the battlefield, and the picnicking socialites, along with the panicking Union troops, ran for their lives in disorder and disarray back to Washington. In fact, uh, the war could have ended there, uh, because, but the, the Southern Army was also underestimated the difficulties of this war. Jackson wanted to mark, go ahead, let's follow up and march right into Washington, put the end of the war right there, but they drew back and decided not to do that. But it was a total rout. They all just ran in disarray back to Washington. And it was a rude awakening to the fact that indeed war is not a picnic. The battle showed Congress and President Lincoln that the Civil War would be much more difficult and much tougher than they anticipated. Well, as we return to our study of the first epistle to Timothy, Paul doesn't want Timothy to underestimate the nature of his calling by forgetting that the living of the Christian life in faithful devotion and service to Christ is not a picnic either. It's a fight, a struggle to the death, a warfare that we must wage. Uh, the central concern of this passage is found at the end of verse 18. He writes, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. And here's the central concern of the, the passage, that you may wage the good warfare. The apostle describes the Christian life as a warfare, and there is this concern that Timothy successfully waged this good warfare in order that, as he lays out in verse 20, he does not, uh, he, he does not suffer shipwreck, kind of changing the metaphor from an ar army perhaps to navy, that he does not suffer shipwreck concerning the faith. And in this passage, Paul also gives him encouragement and motivation and instruction regarding how to wage this warfare. One commentator has divided up the emphasis of this passage under two headings. We have a charge to fight well, and we are told how to fight well. The second part, how to fight well, I hope to come back to next time. And Paul mentions several things. For example, remembering your calling and your instructions. Verses 18a. Then there's the matter of continuing to have and to maintain faith. Faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us and trusting in him and applying that to yourself and continuing to do that, continuing to have faith and a good conscience, verse 19a. And then he tells him also to take note of and be warned 
by the example of those you know, Timothy, who have failed to do this and have suffered shipwreck concerning the faith. Verse 19b to verse 20. And all of that I hope to begin to open up next time. Really, this, this is one of those passages that you come to from time to time when you're preaching and it's like a gold mine. It's like there's so much important truth about the Christian life packed in to these three verses that we're going to take time to unpack and to open up in the days ahead. But all I hope to do today is to begin to look at this, and uh, this, this morning I just want to focus on one thing, and that is the manner in which Paul describes the Christian life. He describes the life of faith, devotion, and service to Jesus Christ as a warfare, or it can be translated by the word fight, wage the good warfare, or as the New American Standard has it, fight the good fight. And sometimes we can start digging into the details of a passage and really kind of miss the forest for the trees. So before we dig in, all I want to do this morning is to draw out some very simple, basic truths that are right here on the surface of this description. Truths that are vital for us as God's people to come to grips with. And the first one is this. This reminds us that the Christian life is indeed a warfare. A warfare. Now, someone might wish to limit this description of the Christian, uh, to the Christian ministry, since Timothy is a minister of the gospel, but I don't think it's proper to do that because, as we'll see, this same description is given in the New Testament of the Christian life in general, a life that certainly involves for all of us, just as it did Timothy, various spheres of Christian service and ministry. And indeed, for Timothy, uh, that sphere included being a preacher and a shepherd of God's people. And Paul is certainly concerned here that Timothy be faithful to his calling, but it's more than that. Being faithful to his calling as a minister of the gospel was simply one part for Timothy of remaining faithful to Christ and living the Christian life in general. So this doesn't just apply to Timothy. It applies to all of us who profess to be followers and servants of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a warfare. Now notice I didn't say that becoming a Christian is a warfare. And I'm not saying, nor is Paul saying, that we make ourselves Christians by striving and working and fighting, waging war, until we finally become good enough to be accepted by God. No. The entrance into the Christian life is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We do not work to become Christians. We cease looking to our own works and efforts. We count them as worthless and dung unable to make us right with God in any degree, and we trust only in the work already accomplished for us by Jesus Christ. We become Christians when we are united to Christ, when we're born of the Spirit. We put our trust in Jesus Christ alone and His finished work for forgiveness and justification before God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, becoming a Christian is not a matter of waging war. It's not a matter of striving and putting more oomph into it and more effort and trying harder. It's about realizing that you're a wretched sinner, that you've already forfeited God's favor, that the curse of the law is hanging upon you, that law that demands perfect obedience, and that you stand condemned before God's holy law, damned by His holy law, headed for hell. There's only one way you can be saved. It's through Jesus Christ, who took the damnation that you deserve upon Himself on the cross. And He fulfilled all righteousness as our representative the righteousness that you do not have is in Him. 
And it's through putting your trust, your faith in Him alone that that righteousness is credited to you and your sins are wiped away. His blood cleanses you from all of your sins and you become united to Jesus Christ. And you become one of God's children. But now, having become a Christian, we begin to live the Christian life. We begin to live the Christian life, the life of sanctification and devotion to our Savior, a life of persevering in the faith. Well, the point I'm making and that we're reminded of here in our text is that the living of the Christian life is a warfare. It's not a picnic. Uh, it's a war. It's a struggle, a conflict, a battle. It's a fight. And this implies that we have enemies, real enemies who are seeking to destroy our faith to cause us to suffer shipwreck, as Paul describes at the end of verse 19. Enemies that are seeking to hinder us and to destroy our testimony for Christ, and even if possible, to lead us to apostasy. And what are these enemies? Well, first of all, there is Satan and his demonic hosts. Though Christ has given the death blow to Satan and his ultimate defeat is certain, he's still active to trouble and oppose God's people, as Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, but we do wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And he tells us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Then there's a second enemy, the allurements and temptations, and also the hostility of an evil world. The pull of its pleasures, the attractiveness and false promises of its possessions, the desires for its praise and the fear of of its threats, all of these things that seek to draw our hearts away from Christ. And then the third enemy is the one that's found in your very own bosom, the presence of indwelling sin in our hearts and bodies. While sin's reign over us has been broken in Christ, sin still remains in us to vex us and to trouble us. The world and the flesh have a landing ground within our hearts for their temptations. And therefore, the fight is not only with enemies outside of us, we must fight the enemy within, our own remaining and indwelling corruption. The Christian life is a warfare. This is how the New Testament describes it many times. And it's a terrible misrepresentation of the Christian message that depicts it as offering to us a life of ease with no struggle. And there are, there are types of holiness teaching out there that do that. Basically, they say, if you're a Christian seeking to live the Christian life and you find that you're consciously struggling and consciously laboring and wrestling and fighting and striving and resisting, then in fact, what you're doing is you're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. You haven't learned yet the, quote, secret of victory and the secret of living a victorious Christian life. And they say the trouble is that so many Christian people remain ignorant of this secret and therefore they go on fighting and struggling. Well, dear friends, evidently, the Apostle Paul and all the other apostles and New Testament writers were also ignorant of this so-called secret. Because throughout the New Testament, the language that's used to describe the nature of the Christian life is the language of warfare. 
Sometimes it's very violent language. Mortify the deeds of the body. Cut off your right hand. Cut off... I started to say your right foot. You probably should do that too. Pluck out your right eye. Right? Again, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We wrestle not against, this is this language, we, we wrestle not but we, against flesh and blood, but we, we do wrestle. We wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch or be on watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 and 9. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Do you hear all of this military imagery that the Bible uses to describe the Christian life? Later in this first epistle to Timothy, Paul writes to him in chapter 6, verse 12, and he says, fight the good fight of faith. Paul is exhorting Timothy as he is here in our text, and he tells him that he must fight. And there are, as you probably know, there are indications in Scripture, hints in Scripture, that Timothy tended at times to be timid and fearful. So Paul tells him, you must fight the good fight of faith. Timothy, pull yourself together. This is warfare. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's the picture. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So you see, the New Testament often describes the Christian life in military terms as a great warfare and a great conflict with our adversary, the devil, and with his host of demonic forces, and with their allies, the world, with its temptations, and our own remaining corruption, which provide the avenues through which the world and the devil seek to get at us. We are strangers in an alien land. We are in the enemy's territory. We are soldiers of Christ, participants in the great colossal struggle of the ages between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. And we must fight and we must resist the world, the flesh, and the devil even unto death. So this is the first truth right here on the surface. The Christian life is a warfare. And dear friends, any teaching that gives the impression that the pathway to glory is all calm and smooth is not biblical Christianity. What the prophet said to King Asa in 2 Chronicles 16.9 can be said of every Christian from the moment he first pledges allegiance to Jesus Christ, from now on, you shall have wars. It's been put this way. From the moment of your spiritual rebirth to the moment of your natural death, from the moment that you first set your face to heaven to the moment that you set your foot in heaven, there will be conflict and warfare. But then a the second truth. We see in our text that the Christian life is a warfare you and I have to wage. 
you and I have to wage. Paul's concern is that Timothy wage the good warfare. Or it can be translated, fight the good warfare. This is not only a warfare, this is a warfare you and I have to wage. Now we need to be very clear about this. There is, as I commented earlier, there is a teaching, it's somewhat popular in some circles, about sanctification in the Christian life that basically says that the great trouble with most of us is we are fighting and struggling and resisting against these enemies of our soul and of the gospel. And it says, Christian people, you've been making this great mistake. You've been trying to fight the battle. You've been trying to resist and to struggle. You must stop doing that. There is only one thing that you need to do. You need to, quote, hand it over to the Lord and all will be well. Just hand it over to the Lord and he will fight for you. And you'll no longer have this feeling of conflict and struggle. You need to quit all of this struggling and striving and just let God do it all for you. And this, they say, is what he's offering to do, and all of your wrestling and striving is doing nothing but actually hindering God from being able to do so. And another way in which this teaching is sometimes put is let go and let God. I actually have a little book in my library that's advocating this, this uh, kind of idea I'm talking to you about. It's entitled Let Go and Let God. Just let go and let God. This is the, the secret to living the Christian life. And if you'll finally come to the place of being tired of all this struggling and resisting and finally hit bottom and just give up, as it were, in defeat and surrender the whole battle entirely to the Lord and just let go and let God, then suddenly you'll begin to find out that all the struggle is gone and everything will begin to come easily and almost effortlessly. And then after passing through this initial crisis, all you need to do is just keep on abiding in the Lord, which... To this theology means you just need to keep on in this way of refusing to struggle, refusing to fight, and you just keep leaving it all entirely to the Lord. Just rest in the working of God through you, and victory will be yours, easy and almost effortlessly and without a fight. And you'll find, sometimes find in Christian bookstores, books that promote this teaching in one form or another, and you'll sometimes hear it referred to as the deeper life or higher life theology. It's a teaching that sounds very spiritual, but in fact, it's very dangerous if taken seriously. On the one hand, it, it tends to lead to what has been called a crippling bondage to subjectivism. Now, what, what does that mean? It means being in bondage to your feelings and your moods or to waiting to, for so-called impulses of the Spirit. You can get the idea that only that which you feel like doing, that which comes almost effortlessly and easily is truly of God. If I feel sort of carried along with this, then I know that God is really with me. And it's God who's really moving me. But if I feel any reluctance or any dullness of spirit or any weariness, or if it seems sometimes like I'm climbing up a steep hill and striving and struggling, or if I feel anything that can be called conflict or warfare, well, that means God's not in it. It must mean I'm grieving the spirit. I'm walking in the flesh. Or maybe I'm not even a Christian. So on the one hand, this teaching can tend to lead to this crippling subjectivism, bondage to your feelings to move you along, or impulses of the Spirit to move you along. Or it can also lead to a shallow view of the nature of sin. Now, how does it do that? Well, obviously people who get sucked into this kind of teaching uh, tend to neglect to do what the Scriptures exhort us to do by actively and earnestly 
doing these things God has commanded them to do, regardless of how they feel, they neglect their duty to fight and to wrestle and to resist the devil and to mortify the flesh and to pluck out the right eye, as it were, and to cut off the right hand. If, if you're striving like that, you're not really trusting God, they think. And then they convince themselves, like the king, in the story of the king who wore no clothes. You ever read that story? Uh, they convince themselves that they have attained to this so-called higher life. When in fact, their hearts are full of spiritual pride. And while they're claiming to have this victory, they're blinded to just how shallow and sinful and unholy their lives really are. And with some of these, I'm afraid the real problem is they've never truly been converted to begin with. They're not even in the war. So it's no wonder they don't feel any conflict. Also, I would add that this teaching can lead to a false guilt and a lack of assurance in the heart of a true Christian, a true believer. Perhaps some of you dear children of God here this morning have been struggling with this very thing. Somehow you have this idea that if you feel any struggle or difficulty or labor or you're experiencing anything that could be called conflict in the living of the Christian life, something's not right. You're not surrendered enough. You're, you're not believing enough. Well, my dear brother or sister, do you see how such a teaching is a contradiction of this passage before us? Not to mention the rest of the New Testament. Now, it is true, when it comes to justification, reconciliation with God, we do nothing but trust in Christ and His work for us. We rest in Christ, who died on the cross for sinners. We receive Him to ourselves with the empty hand of faith. And we rest in His righteousness that is credited to us and justifies us before God. It's also true that when it comes to our sanctification and living the Christian life, our strength and our power to resist the devil, to fight against sin and temptation, to wage this warfare comes from God. It's true that we are to look to Christ and trust in Christ for the power to do what we know in ourselves by our own power we could never do. Thank God it is He, by His Spirit, who gives to His people the strength to carry on this conflict. But it's still a conflict, <clears throat> and we still have to fight. Christ does not simply fight for us while we just kind of sit back and enjoy the fruits of His victory without any struggle. No, He makes me, He makes you more than a conqueror. He gives me strength. Yes, but it's still my battle. And I have to wage it. I have to actively, consciously, deliberately, and sometimes very painfully engage in this conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is the balanced teaching of the New Testament on the subject of sanctification and living the Christian life. We look to God, our Father, for strength. We cry to Christ for the grace to overcome in the conflict. And we trust Him. For that grace, the power of God by the indwelling Spirit promised to His people is the basis of our trust and confidence as we engage in the warfare. But the focus of our conscious effort is upon our deliberate striving, resisting, and fighting. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
not in my presence only, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he's not telling they need to work in order to be justified. He's already acknowledged in this letter that these are believers who are in Christ Jesus, saints who are in Christ Jesus. He's writing to them as believers. It's to them, he says, that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the last day. But he's telling them now to work out this salvation that they have received. He's talking about the living of the Christian life. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He follows with this promise. Our working is to be the focus of our conscious, deliberate, strenuous effort. But here we have the promise of God's working in us, which is to be the basis of our trust and confidence. So you see, our working is, is to be with all of our hearts, with all of our energy that God gives to us. We're to focus our conscious effort. We must work. We must strive. We must fight. While the promise of God's working is the basis of our trust and confidence that we will, as we do so, we're not on a fool's errand. By his strength, we will increasingly overcome. We may sometimes lose a battle. We may be wounded, but we will ultimately win the war and never be lost. We will persevere in the faith and devotion to Christ until the very end. You know, someone might read this passage and think Paul is contradicting himself. You know, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then he says, for it is God who is working in you. So Paul, what do you mean? Is, am I to work or is God working? Which is it, Paul? What would Paul say? It's not either or. It's both and. They're concurrent realities. God is working in his people by his Holy Spirit as they are united to Jesus Christ. And they are working as a result of that. But we don't wait on some impulses of the Spirit. We focus our conscious endeavor upon working, fighting, striving against our sin, putting it to death, cultivating Christ-like virtue in our life, resisting the devil, fleeing from him, resisting the allurements and the temptations of this world. Think about it this way. Think of... <clears throat> Excuse me, think of David and Goliath. When David killed Goliath, how did he do it? You remember he, he's standing there on the plain and he looks up at this big giant and he says, The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, will deliver you into my hands. And then he just kind of stood there and waited on Goliath to fall down and die. Is that what he did? No. David had to fight. He got five smooth stones, he, he went out with his sling, and he let it fly, and he hit Goliath between the eyes, and Goliath fell down, then David went and took his sword out of the sheath and cut his head off. David had to fight. David got the victory. God got the victory. David got the victory. David got the victory by the power of God, but not by being passive. He had to fight. He had to engage in the conflict. It's like preaching. When I stand up here to preach, I know that uh, when I'm preaching that unless the Holy Spirit comes and blesses the preaching of His Word, that it's not going to have any lasting fruit in the lives of God's people or in, in the salvation of sinners. 
I know that. God has to do the work. It's God who saves. And so, what do I do then? So, do I just stand up here and just wait for the Spirit of God to take over? Well, He's not giving me anything to say this morning, so you guys can go home. We'll come back next week. Maybe, maybe something will happen. No. I have to study to show myself approved unto God. Second Timothy. I have to labor in prayer. I have to stand in the pulpit and open up the scriptures and seek to present the word of God in a clear way, an understandable way, applying it to our lives and to our consciences. I have to work. Yet working knowing that it's the spirit of God who will make it effectual to the good of those to whom I preach. You see, the two things go together. They don't contradict each other. So, so it is in the Christian life. The Christian life is a conflict and a warfare and it's a warfare that you and I have to wage. <clears throat> now, the third truth I want to emphasize, this points to, and really this is just an implication of what has already been said, and it's this. God's people must cultivate and seek to maintain a military mindset in the living of the Christian life. A military mindset. The call to follow Christ is a call to battle. It's a call to war. And we must let that reality exercise a regulating influence over our whole attitude, our whole approach to the Christian life and also to the work of the gospel, both as a church and as individual Christians. As many of you know, Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador who died as a martyr in 1956. Whenever he was asked to give his autograph, he also would write from 2 Timothy 2.4 these words. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. What was he doing when he did that? He was seeking to remind himself, seeking to maintain a military mindset in the living of the Christian life and in the cause of the gospel. Quoting from Jeff Thomas, commenting on this. Each day when we rise, we are to remind ourselves that we are not on basic training. Or on maneuvers. This is the real thing. We are at the front line and the thick of the battle. We are facing a fight on many fronts. The wiles of the devil, principalities and powers, the roaring lion, the snares of Satan, the hatred of the world. We are meeting all the way society organizes itself for the discomfort and the embarrassment of the Christian faith. How it constantly applies pressure to us to apostatize. More than that, the fight will also be with ourselves and with remaining and dwelling sin. The spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit. Basically, he's saying we need to keep reminding of ourselves of this. We must cultivate a military mindset in the living of the Christian life. And the same is true when it comes to the cause of the gospel, missions and evangelism. The church, in a sense, is a barracks. And God's people are soldiers engaged in this great conflict with the powers of darkness. And yet, is it not true that the climate of American evangelicalism is often more like that of a clinic than a barracks? A clinic where we all come to receive treatment. Or a hospital, a place where all the wounded and defeated gather together to lick one another's wounds, or what is perhaps I think more often the case today, a place where we just gather together to be entertained 
or to be soothed and to forget about our problems, what someone has called a nice guy club. And we have nice little devotional talks and nice little entertaining sermonettes sprinkled in with concerts and performances. And it's all very sweet and harmless and soothing and sentimental. The whole climate is more like that of a clinic where people gather to receive treatment or a theater where people gather to be entertained or to be emotionally medicated to dull the pain rather than that of an army engaged in a mighty life and death struggle with the powers of hell. But dear brothers and sisters, that is not biblical Christianity. Now, of course, there is a sense in which the truth of the church may be compared to a hospital, a hospital for souls, but if so, it's a military hospital, a mass unit on the field of battle, It's absolutely essential that we as God's people cultivate, seek to maintain a military mindset in the living of the Christian life. Listen, if you fail to do that, you're going to be in great danger spiritually. Some Christians sometimes have this idea that the Christian life is a life which everything is supposed to go well all the time. Just blessing upon blessing with no real problems to amount to much. No struggle, no pain, no sweat, no blood and grime, no fighting and conflict. And so what happens? Well, before too long, they begin to realize that things aren't working out that way. Maybe you've been struggling with this. Maybe you're a relatively new Christian. Maybe you've been struggling with this. Bad things happen. Painful things, hard things. There are trials and problems and difficulties and persecutions and disappointments pressing in upon you. And you almost begin to feel that life was much easier before you became a Christian. And like the children of Israel, you begin to look back to Egypt. And you begin to get discouraged. And you begin to question and to doubt, perhaps even to become cynical and disillusioned, or perhaps you begin to feel sorry for yourself and to have a pity party. And my dear friend, at that point, you're already defeated. Satan has you exactly where he wants you. He has set you up for a terrible fall. And what's the problem? There's been a failure to cultivate, to maintain, by the grace of God, a military mindset in the living of the Christian life. And what does the Bible say to anyone who has fallen into this condition? Does it say, oh, my poor, poor friend, how awful and terrible that you've had to endure such things. You're right. It's not fair. Here's a clinic for you. Here's a message that will soothe you and medicate you and pamper you. And give you an emotional release from all the struggle. And that promises a carefree life. Is that what the Bible says to us? No, it comes to you and it says, My dear child of God, you must resist the devil. You must stand against him. You must not listen to him. You must fight. The Christian life is a warfare. Pull yourself together. Brace yourself. Quit wallowing in self-pity. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. Yeah, I never thought 1 Peter had 12 chapters there. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you 
as though some strange thing happened to you. What's Peter saying? He's saying, hey, don't be surprised by all this. Don't think that something has gone wrong. Don't think that God has somehow let you down. Don't fall into the mire of self-pity and feeling sorry for yourself. No, he says, don't think it's strange, but instead rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. In other words, Peter says, the fiery trial that has come upon you, the conflict, the warfare that you're enduring as you seek to be faithful to Christ, it's just another evidence that you're really in the battle, that you truly are a child of God, that you're in the army of the Lord. You're in the battle. You're one of his people, a partaker of his sufferings, which are but a prelude to the glory that will be yours on the last day. Notice how he uses the same argument over in chapter 5. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing there's something you need to know, something you need to be remembering, you need to be aware of, that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He says, this is something you need to count on. Don't think it's strange. There needs to be a biblical realism and your understanding of the Christian life. You must realize that this conflict is part and parcel, Peter says, of the experience of every child of God in the world. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always going to be. If you're a Christian to one degree or another, because God's people have an adversary, the devil who's walking about, seeking whom he may devour. And we must fight, and we must resist him, steadfast in the faith. And sometimes the battle rages with greater intensity, sometimes with lesser, but the Christian life will always be a warfare. And so, brothers and sisters, we must, by the grace of God, cultivate a military mindset. There are, these are warring days. Our rest is in heaven. In the world to come, not yet. Don't imagine that God has called you to a soft and easy life. Don't expect a carefree life of nothing but constant comfort and ease. In taking up the cross to follow Jesus, you have become a soldier in a bloody conflict. As the old hymn says, Christians, seek not yet repose. Cast thy dreams of ease away. Thou art in the midst of foes, watch and pray. And the other old hymn, off in danger, off in woe, onward Christian, onward go. Fight the fight, maintain the strife, strengthened with the bread of life. Faint not, much doth yet remain, dreary is the long campaign. You say, well, pastor, you really have the gift of encouragement. <laughs> Dreary is the long campaign. Well, sometimes the best comfort is a good dose of reality. And sometimes it's not only comfort we need. We need to be shaken up. We, we need to be shaken out of the slew of self-pity that we may have fallen into. And that would be the first step to receiving the right kind of comfort. It's like in a war. 
You know, the guys, they've been training, they're ready to go to battle. As soon as they get on the battlefield, man, and some bombs start falling, bullets start flying, you have that, what, that, what they call uh, a young being shell-shocked. The guy's shell-shocked. He freezes, you know. His sergeant has to come and shake him, maybe even slap him in the face. Say, wake up. This is warfare. Get out there. Fight. Sometimes we need that. We get shell-shocked. I think about when I played football in high school. Our football team was really, you know, we hadn't had to lose in season in like 25 years when I was there. We were like a state level. They won the state championship my, the year after I graduated. We won the division, uh, Western Division state championship. Uh, so was, this was, you know, serious football and but we usually, uh, the first several games of the season, we just killed the teams that we played. But then would come our game with Tuscola, which is in Waynesville, and they were our big rival. And when you walked out on the field against Tuscola, it didn't take long for you to realize this is different. Because when the hitting started, you realize, man, I better buckle my chin strap or my head's going to get knocked off, right? Well, that's what Paul's saying. That's Timothy. Son, Timothy, you better buckle your chin strap. This is warfare that you're engaged in. This is serious business. This isn't playtime. This isn't pretend war. This isn't like when... When we were kids, we used to go out with our little, you know, little machine gun and play war. This is real. This is for real. And this isn't basic training. You're on the battlefield. And there are real enemies who are out to destroy you and destroy your soul and to destroy the church and to destroy your family. You better buckle your chin strap. This is what God did with Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 12. Poor old Jeremiah. He had it rough. And Jeremiah at this point is complaining at the prosperity of the wicked and he was grieving over the ill treatment that he was receiving from his own kinsmen and all of the difficulties of his life. And he began to be weary of prophesying and he was ready to quit, to give up. He was wallowing in self-pity. And then the Lord spoke these words to him. Jeremiah 12, 5. He said, Jeremiah... If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? What a strange way to comfort someone. What was God saying to Jeremiah? He was saying, in essence, Jeremiah, are you going to quit now? Will you give way to... Self-pity, don't you know that your labors and your sufferings and your warfare have just begun? Jeremiah, pull yourself together. Get up. Quit complaining and feeling sorry for yourself. Press on. There is more conflict. There's even hotter battles yet ahead. I've called you to warfare, and it will be warfare to the very end. You see, God was calling him back to a military mindset, to a biblical realize, realism. And also God promises Jeremiah here. And he promises all, him all along that he will be with him. 
that he will strengthen him, that he will help him, that he will see him through. We see the same thing in the book of Hebrews. Those Christians there were suffering all kinds of hardships and temptations, and they were being tempted to turn back, to take the easy way. This is, this is too hard. We didn't sign up for this. And they're being tempted to, to faint, as it says in the text, to give up. And in Hebrews 12, 4, after exhorting them not to faint, the writer says this. How, what does he say to them? He says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. In other words, he says, in effect, I know what you're going through. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But you haven't been killed, have you? At least you haven't been martyred for your faithfulness to Christ. You have not resisted yet to blood, striving against sin. And the implication is that you need to pull yourself together. You need to have a mindset that's prepared for the fact that it might very well one day come to that. And it has come to that. In fact, for many of the saints of God who have gone before us, whatever you're enduring now, at least you can be thankful, it hasn't come to that. But it could. And it has for many others. He's reminding these Hebrew Christians that even they may one day be called to give their lives as martyrs for the cause of Christ in this great conflict with sin and the devil and for the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And your loyalty to Christ and His cause must be such that by the grace of God, with His help, you'd rather suffer death than to sin against Him. You would rather die than to disgrace His name to give up and to give in and desert his cause. Listen, as Christians, we should never feel sorry for ourselves. We must never give in to it. Brothers, I know what it is to fall into that. That that slew of self-pity Feeling sorry for ourselves. We must never let self-pity get a grip on us because the moment you do, Satan has you right where he wants you. The moment you do, you begin to lose the will to fight. And you become spiritually paralyzed. And you just don't care anymore. And that just leads to more bad things. Drifting further and further. How we need to be reminded of this, there are certain things we have no problem recognizing as sinful, and we would never dream of doing them. But let us remember that one of the greatest sins is the sin of self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself and becoming bitter against God and nurturing thoughts that cast doubt upon God's love and His goodness and His care for you. Never think it's strange, never think it's surprising that the life into which you have come as a Christian is not always an easy life. God has told us it would be so. Acts 14, 22 says that we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. So we need to constantly fly to the throne of grace and cry to our Lord to help us and to uphold us. He promises to give us the grace we need. For every trial, and we must remember, and this is the fourth and final truth as I close about this that's here in our text. We must remember that the warfare we are engaged in is a good warfare. Paul says that you may wage the good warfare. There's such a thing as bad warfare. 
a bad conflict and we start fighting among ourselves, for example, over stupid, silly things. But this warfare is a good warfare. Fought for the best of generals. The Lord Jesus Christ fought for the best causes. The glory of His name, the advancement of His kingdom. Fought with the most, in fact, the absolute assurance of ultimate victory. What a wonderful thing if you're in a war and it's hard and people are falling and limbs are being blown off and there's blood and gore and it's a fight and it's a struggle and it's a battle. But you already know you're going to win. You're going to win the war. Well, you see, we can fight with that kind of assurance that as we fight and if we fight, we have the most certain assurance of ultimate victory in spite of the difficulties, our Lord's ways. Even so are the ways of blessedness. And there are solid joys and lasting pleasures that only Zion's children know. Though the conflict is great, the consolations and the glory are infinitely greater. The Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, the one who has already won, the greatest and the most difficult of all battles, he endured all the way to the cross, where there he suffered for us, and he won that conclusive battle, the D-Day of human history, when he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, where he endured the wrath we deserve to secure the salvation of all who put their trust in him, the one who has already secured that V-Day, our ultimate triumph over sin, Satan, and hell, and death is coming. The Lord Jesus... Our great captain, the mighty warrior, he walks with us every step of the way. It's under his banner that we fight, and he that is with us is greater than he that is in the world. He gives us continual assistance in the conflict. He comes along by his spirit, through his word, to give us those seasons of refreshing which he gently wipes away the perspiration. He gives more grace, enabling, inspiring us with new strength and new energy, and he keeps us in the way by his power until that final day of triumph when we will receive an incorruptible and glorious crown. And there we will be with him in Emmanuel's land, the new heavens and the new earth, and we will lay our weapons down once and for all, and enter into our rest in a perfect and sinless world. And it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Sometimes, as the hymn says, the day seems long. Our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away all tears forever over in God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy and to us of the nature of the Christian life as a warfare, a warfare that by your grace, we must wage. 
We pray you'd help us, Lord, to wage a good warfare. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for often caving in and becoming perhaps disillusioned or falling into a slew of self-pity. Forgive us, Father. Strengthen us, Lord Jesus, by your grace to continue the fight, to do so even to the very end. We ask in your precious name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.